Welcome everyone to the Turnaround Project Lived Experience Series. Today I'm joined by Paul Harriet, Head of Engagement at the Prison Reform Trust. Welcome to the podcast, Paula. Thank you for having me, Michael. Yeah, just for the listeners, Paula, can you tell everyone briefly what you're doing at present with the Prison Reform Trust? So right now, Michael, um, I'm the lead for prisoner involvement at the Prison Reform Trust. Um, I lead the Prisoner Policy Network, which is a network of about a thousand prisoners and former prisoners and family members and around 28 supporting organisations in the community that work together to make sure like prisoner perspective is uh, part of the policy and influencing work of PRT and that we're identifying and supporting prisoner leadership um, in the sector. That's exactly, that's, that's, that's in one sentence what I do now. <laughs> but I mean, but that, that, that's that, but also I do lots of stuff. Like that's the main focus of my work. It's about how do I create um, platforms and spaces for people to understand that system change needs prisoner leadership, needs prisoner perspective within it. Um, that if we keep building on and replicating knowledge that we already have, that we're probably not going to come to innovative solutions. And that the human wisdom that lies within all of us, and especially in those that aren't normally invited into the spaces to share their wisdom without that component, without that ingredient, we're probably not going to get to a more sophisticated understanding. We're definitely not going to create innovation. So my work's all around, I suppose, trying to influence people to do that, to do that, and then support the people into those spaces so that so that we get a richer discussion about social justice. Yeah, and I think we'll we'll dig a wee bit more into that. <laughs> Toward, toward, towards the end of the podcast. But that was a fantastic elevator pitch. <laughs> was it? <laughs> yeah. Are you in? Are you in, Michael? Yeah, I'm Are definitely you in? in? I'm definitely in. Good. So just... just Put your hand in your this. pocket now for the check, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> right. Just, just, for, just for the listeners to set the context of, of how we met. Um, yeah. I saw a... Uh, piece of publication via social media, uh, I think around November time mm-hmm. of 2020 during COVID for a, a program called Double Lockdown, which was being initiated by the Centre for Knowledge Equity, Clore Social and the Lax Leaders Movement, which is mm-hmm. where I which is where I met you. And, and we've sort of been in contact sort of <laughs> from then. I don't know what, I yeah, don't want to call you my surrogate mom, but we spent a lot of time, we spent a lot of time <laughs> talking. I think so. I think it's about all of our work, really, when you boil it down to the essence, Michael, is about human connection, isn't it? And sometimes you just meet people in the course of your life and you feel this, like, connection with them and you know sometimes that's romantic sometimes that's maternal paternal sometimes that's political sometimes that's just about sole purpose I think you're one of those people in my life I think that there was like this immediate like connection um when we met when I was a part of the 
supporting lecturing on that program and and this sort of immediate understanding of how our life journeys have crossed crossed or, or been sort of we've been on the same life journey and then suddenly we've had this moment where our paths have crossed and we've gone like oh yeah I know you I know where you're coming from and I know where you're going to and we're sort of like treading a journey together now from now on in sort of thing yeah it's been it's been uh, it's been amazing over the over the past 12 months since since meet with you and, and some of the others on that on that vaccine yeah. I mean, um I was particularly taken in terms of you know people's presentations and talks and facilitation by yourself mm. Baljeet uh, mm. and Makeda who I thought you know if if ever there was three women leading any type of movement or empowerment platform <laughs> <laughs> I was rowing in quickly behind them <laughs> do you know what I mean uh, yeah. so it's good it's good when you can identify that energy isn't it and feel comfortable with that energy and feel like yeah, yeah I want to put my shoulder to the wheel because like wherever they're going looks like it's going to be like it, it feels like it's got the potential for powerful change. Yeah. And I, I've, I've stayed in contact with some people um, mm. who were on that program, Paula, um, mm. since, since it's since it's completion sort of in the May, June time. So, yeah, some some really good people and, and some real social social change, and social justice warriors um, within that movement and, and that we met, which is which are my type of people, as you know. Yeah, no, and that was the rationale for bringing them together, for bringing everybody together, is that in my journey through um, social justice, sometimes it can feel very, very lonely. Yeah, I, I and, agree with and, you. And you can be on your own, you know, you're working in, you're working, it's like you're pushing a stone uphill, aren't you? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's <laughs> like, you know, we're heading for the promised land, you know, sometimes it feels like we're wandering in the desert. And like suddenly then the sense of a strength and collective energy and redefinition re of purpose and direction that you can get when you come together with like-minded people is so important as part of the, the, the journey to change. And one of, that was definitely the rationale for me about bringing people together in that double lockdown program, which was about like, um, not just looking for people who were working with com criminal convictions that were working in criminal justice, but looking at the intersections of criminal justice. So, you know, in health and well-being, in drug and alcohol sector, in homelessness, you know, like there are people with convictions who are working in all of those um, sectors as well but we've all got a commonality of course which is all about um adversity um social and political inequality and so we understand intersectionality at a very individual you know micro plane and bringing us all together in that space was so energizing and you're right i you know there were 103 people that took part in that leadership program during lockdown and, you know, I would say that I'm in touch with, with, with many of them, most of them, the majority of them, as a consequence. And I think that our movement and our voice is stronger as a consequence of just being together. And even just, you know, me being on this podcast is a direct outcome of being, meeting you and joining forces, you know, and look now, you know, 
was sort of like we're better together <laughs> than on our own and I think yep. that that's like a lesson of the lived experience movement that we really understand the value of peer support because when I was in that prison cell in 2004 it was definitely other prisoners that got me through the hardest times not the system yeah and I was I was just going to touch on that Paula but before I do um, you mentioned the lax leaders movement and you're what's known as a lax elder within that movement can you just can you just explain to the listeners what that means so um a couple of years ago um baljit sandhu who's the now the um chief equity officer of the center for knowledge equity but at that time that organization did not exist i met her um she had published a a very important paper in our movement called the value of lived experience in 2000 and I think it's 2017, 2017. Yeah, 2000. And, um, it might be, is it 2017, Michael? 2017 <laughs> and then there's another one. From That's right, rebooting yeah. the DNA of lived experience leadership, which was I think 2019. Yeah. But anyway, during that time, I met Baljeet um, just after the publication of her report and I didn't know her. And when I met her, I went to a meeting and uh, she was at the table and, you know, introduced myself and, and then she went to introduce herself. I said, oh, you're Baljeet. You're Baljeet. Oh, my God, I've read your report. Like, I, I, you speak my language. And it was like, it was just like that, you know, like if you were like two warriors, you know, um, and you'd been like uh, fighting in the jungle on your own. <laughs> And then suddenly you meet a fellow a fellow comrade and you go, yo, you're <laughs> Oh, my God. Like, I've, I've, met, I've met you. And, like, from that, you know, I think a friendship developed and a comradeship and a, and a, and a sort of a connection. And then Baljit um, wanted to get a group of sort of senior lived experience leaders across the intersections of... Um, social justice so you know just as I said people from mental health homelessness you know um drug and alcohol you know racial justice gender justice whatever people we we brought together I think about 12 people and we went away for um a residential we 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 met up sort of like on a regular basis you know trying to discern what it was that we needed as a as a group but also what was needed to push the agenda of social change forward and we realized that a movement was required and that was sort of the birth of the movement notion and then we needed a vehicle and a host for that movement and um Baljit myself and a guy called Peter Atherton uh, from community-led initiative coming out of those residentials we we had the mandate to found both a lex the lex movement you know and try to bring together all the varying networks that there are just as i have the prisoner policy network everybody's got different networks you know there's ensign national service user network in mental health, try to bring all these networks together so that we could create an intersectional Lex network, Lex movement that would speak with one collective voice for social change. Um, and, and we also then 
needed a host for the Lex movement, so an infrastructure type host. And therefore, Baljeet, myself, and Peter Atherton founded the Lex movement, the, uh, the Centre for Knowledge Equity. Yeah, well, I've actually, I'd actually love to get Peter and Baljeet onto this podcast at, oh, at some stage. I'm sure they'd love to. I'm sure they'd <laughs> oh, love yeah. to, you know, and, and I'm sure that they could, they both have like such great histories as well and journeys into this space that I think um, it, it, it would demonstrate this the depth and the strength and the breadth um, yeah. of Lex leadership. Um, and I think, you know, what we try to do in our work is there's a lot around service user involvement, which is about, which is early stages of leadership. But we're saying there's a lot of focus on user involvement, but there's not sufficient focus on lived experience leadership. And it's actually leadership. Service user involvement is like informing change. It's like, informing the amelioration or improvement of existing systems. Lex Leadership is saying, where are the root causes of these inequalities and how do we systemically work together to fix that and disrupt the frames and the privilege and the power and the privilege that is exacerbating and intentionally causing those harms? So yeah. we, that's what the double lockdown program is, was about. It was about convening people, A, in those spaces to network and to come together with collective energy, but also to create a, a sort of a more consistent political analysis about how we might create social change in this country. Yeah. And your your knowledge, your wisdom and your and your learning, obviously that was forged and steeped within your own journey. Absolutely. Do you want to take me back on the lead up of of, of how this? Oh my God! How long, have, how long have you got, Michael? How long have you got? Yeah, well, you... let's go for let's go for three days. <laughs> I mean, you know, like I'm not young yet, so like there's quite there's quite a lot to talk about if you in decades, you know, and, then, and I don't know how I can pack that into five minutes, you know, as a synopsis of the, I suppose, um, the varying experiences of my life that have shaped me in terms of wisdom. Because when you think about knowledge, you know, people quite often want to think about academic knowledge or practice experience that you've gathered in your professional life. What lived experience leaders are trying to show you is that and trying to demonstrate with our, I suppose, our openness and our ability to reflect on our life experience, yeah, is that, all of your life is experience that can influence the direction of your life. And that in reflecting back on those life experiences, we gather with wisdom. And we need to, one great thing I think about lived experience leaders is they're constantly reflecting on their life. They're constantly reflecting on their opinions. They're constantly reflecting on their positions. And they're, they're constantly um, adapting and synthesizing everything that they go through in order to lead the way. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with you. And I suppose, Paula, that's based around not only life journeys, but transitions and experiences. Absolutely, and adversity. And I think yeah. adversity. So adversity, reflecting on adversity for social purpose. So quite often, you know, people reduce lived experience to storytelling. Yeah. And there's there's a merit in storytelling, i.e. it can be cathartic for a person to tell their story. 
you know um for instance you know in recovery fellowship you know somebody who shares at the beginning of the meeting you know it's an important component of their healing yeah so there is something about storytelling but storytelling in and of itself won't create political change storytelling can become when it's grasped by organizations and repackaged as user involvement becomes much more about like exploitative and the reason i care about this stuff is because i've got a really complicated life story and life history you know for instance i think it's really you know it's well known that i went to prison in 2004 and i got eight years for cocaine for supplying cocaine and you know, I served four years in prison and four years on license in the community. And it wasn't my first conviction either. You know, I had had other convictions um, for drugs and, you know, hadn't been to prison, had had, had community punishments. So on, on that eight-year on that period, yeah. did you have a, a family at that stage? Did you, yes, did you... I had five yeah. kids. So I had five kids, you know, between the ages of uh, nine and um, 16, nine and 17 when I went away. So tr- totally traumatic. I mean, you know, people might say, oh, you didn't think of the kids when you were doing that. But, you know, when you're in the grip of, I always say, push back to that and say, when you're in the grip of addiction, you don't have the same level of sensitivity. It, it distorts your perception of what's happening and you maybe don't see the risks in what you're doing. And I definitely didn't see the risks in what I was doing. And and But the pain of not being with my kids, you know, when, when I was in the courtroom and I, I realised, you know, I've been found guilty. And I realized that I'm going to go away. And I watched my children, my two eldest kids were in the courtroom and I watched the tears and the anguish. And, you know, I was behind glass. I couldn't, I couldn't reach them. And I, I think it was like a death. Uh, it was like a death. Yeah. Ex- uh, it, it was like a death. And, and I think that, you know, there's some part of me died in that day with the pain and you know people might say yeah the punishment is meant to kill that part of you that wants to commit crime but it killed so much more than that it killed and distorted and fragmented so much of my relationships with my kids that were you know have taken uh, that was in 2004 and you know I would say in 2021 where where I am now those relationships have been altered definitely by that imprisonment. Yeah. Not not for the not 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 in the best way, always. And the harm to those children was immense. And it's taken a long time to to come back from that. And and that experience of being in prison, of being part of that system system that strips you of your name and gives you a number that treats you like um, a voiceless um, minion that orders you about and um, doesn't encourage you for growth. The only encouragement I got in prison for growth was 
that encouragement that I gave to myself and that I received from other prisoners. And it's like all of that life experience, all of that experience of those four years in prison, which, you know, four years is a long time to be away from five kids, to be living with this like pain that you think is like a, a dagger in your heart that, you know, it, you can't pull it out. You know, some people pull it out and try to disconnect from life outside prison because in a way that's a survival mechanism. But that dagger in my heart, you know, it was like, honestly, it was a pain of every single day of I had to endure to come to the place that I am today. And I know that I'm going on and it probably sounds really passionate. And No. Um, uh, but but it, it really what it created in me in that pain though was not a sense of it was illuminating in a way which is bizarre isn't it you know when you think about pain as illumination but it it, it illuminated and created great sensitivities in, in me about use of power the brutal use of power the way officers would like talk to us and and speak to people the way people abuse power the way people use power beautifully to support and beautifully with love to encourage, beautifully with love to elevate and rise up, you know, bring people up rather than push people down. The empathy and compassion and insight of some of the people that I met in that space contrasted with the sort of coldness and lack of, lack of I don't know, like, like even lack of integrity about purpose. Yeah. that I encountered in those spaces. And that was like a great like learning journey for me around what is A, it started as, as what do I need to get through this? What do other women in this space need to get through this? And then turning later in life to what does the system need to learn about from my, what can the system learn about my journey, about how it's the cause of some of this pain and how can we create a more compassionate system that A, doesn't send women with kids for nonviolent offences to prison. You know, how do we have a more sophisticated discussion about what prison actually, what the purpose of in prison is and whether it's working? How can we, how can all of those, that life experience brought me to the space that I'm in now where I interweave my, my lived experience with all the knowledge that I'd gathered in my life, you know, I've skipped over like my oh, life, yeah. but before prison, yeah, you yeah. know, where my dad, my dad was an English Protestant, my mum was an Irish Catholic, and I learned through their marriage what consensus building feels like. Yeah, I saw it in action through love. Yeah. You know, well, how do you people from a polarized opinions and entrenched, entrenched positions, and you know. You know, you and I have spoken about this, Michael, as a person who lives in Northern Ireland. You know, I learned and watched as a child how they navigated all of that difficulty, that emotional difficulty, the loyalties that are historic and built into your DNA. How do you move forward to give birth to a family together and nurture and protect and love that family? I watched them and I, I think that was a really important life lesson about my ability to connect and to believe in the power of love. In prison, I learned about spirituality. I learned about the power of the power of kindness to 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 soothe that pain. I, I learned about how spiritual 
religion or spiritual frameworks offer offer i suppose a, a relief and um bring with them the openness for the imagination and the soul to thrive even in the midst of physical difficulty and yeah. all of that I bring into my work now as a trustee of the Community Chaplaincy Association and a belief in the power of uh, faith to both redeem but also to contribute to a better world, you know. Yeah. And, I, you know, there's so much about my life experience that plays out in my work that it's all relevant, you know. In many ways, this, the period in prison, was was the deepest. It was like taking a PhD. Yeah. Yeah. But I was definitely on the GCSEs and the A levels before that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you, you see you, what I'm saying? And some of yeah. these, like all of our life experiences, you know, I don't know when you get into an argument at, with the receptionist, at the <laughs> doctors or something, you know, that's a learning, a learning opportunity as well in terms of life experience. You know, I have a saying that, you know, even negative experiences are adversarial learning experiences by which you at least learn how not to be in the world because yeah. every time you suffer injury then it, you can adapt and synthesize that into learning you know if you can just put a, put away at some levels the injury but look for the learning within it and at least it can it can strengthen your character about how not to be in the in the world at the very minimum and I think these are very important lessons for all of us. Yeah. And I, I'd like to just take you back slightly, Paula. You mentioned yeah. the disconnect, obviously, with with life outside. Did you accept visitors? Were your, were your children allowed to visit or did you not want them to visit? Or how did that, how did that play out in your mind? Oh, that was so painful. That was so painful. I mean, I, office, I wanted my children to visit. I wanted to be able to see them and hug them and be with them and 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 protect them and just be available to them. You know, I wanted to create that space and I wanted them to come. And I remember the very first time my daughter came to see me, one of my young, my youngest daughter, Amy, came to see me in prison. And she rushed into my arms and she just went, oh, mom, you don't smell like mom. Oh, my God, yeah. So And, like, because prison soap is not fragranced. <laughs> you, don't have, yeah. you, don't have, you don't have perfume. Yeah. You, you know, I, in, when I first went to prison, you're there in the grey tracksuit. You just, like, you don't look like mom. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And And... I'm feeling heartbroken about that. You know, my child yeah. doesn't even quite even smell me in the same way. But um, I think, yeah, I had sporadic visits from them over yeah. those four years because their dad would have had to brought them to the prison. And yeah, I had pure dramas with getting him to come um, to the prison. Um, and they were too young to come unaccompanied um, and ask, you know, there's there's only so much that you can ask friends to take on that burden so there were long periods when I didn't see them not because I didn't want to and not because they wanted to come although um my daughter my middle daughter recently told me mum I hated coming yeah um I used to make excuses why I couldn't why you know 
why I didn't come but actually the reality of moment was so difficult for me and I think like looking back it was really emotionally difficult for all of us and there were there was one me one visit when I had um closed visits you know where you see your children through the glass yeah and that was like that was like the last visit I ever had because I just couldn't put them through that or myself through that ever again yeah I'm um, I'm I'm even put I'm even putting myself in, in their shoes coming into that type of environment, Paula. Um, what they have to go through in terms of process oh, before they that's, actually that's why see mom. Yeah. Absolutely. You talk about life experience like informing your work, you know. I am now a trustee of PACT, the prison advice and care trust that has does most of the families work in prisons in England and Wales. And that's why I give my time to that organization and really push that agenda because you know, the the experience of children who are affected by parental imprisonment is so misunderstood, so under-resourced, and those children are lonely in their pain and in anguish. You know, more children are affected by parental imprisonment than affected by divorce. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, the, and the evidence is really stark about what that, you know, intergenerational impacts of imprisonment, you know. I meet, I work in prisons now, you see fathers and sons yeah, on the same wing. It's, it breaks your heart. And mental health, increased health inequalities, you know, poverty, you know, mm. poverty. Yeah. These children living in, and stigma and shame and embarrassment that their parent is in prison. Like when I think back to how my kids went through that, I, I just a I feel so deeply guilty and deeply ashamed. And secondly, I just wish that that didn't happen to anybody else's kids. Yeah, and, and you know, I make that part of my life's work too, Michael. Yeah, and how did you? I'm, I'm finding this part particularly fascinating as a as a father of of, of girls just yeah. not, not not too far off 14 years yeah how, how did you in effect restore that bond paula uh, upon if, if we look at this in terms of chapters of life and you were you were closing the, you were closing the, the chapter and one and opening a page how did, on I, how did i restore the bond yeah and a you know the deepest lesson was of prison was taught to me by my daughter, yeah. Finn, who came to me one time in prison, and I and I went to hug her, and she's and it was early on in the sentence. I said, "I love you," and she goes, "Mom, don't ever say that you love me ever again, no, because if you'd ever loved me, you would have never put yourself in the position where you could be taken away from me." Yeah, and what what age was she then, Paula? She was 14. Oh, yeah. So, my God. Cup, cup. And, like, the depth of that insight and the depth yeah. of that sharing, you know, like, I heard her. And that was probably the darkest day of my prison sentence. I remember going back to the cell and just lying there, and, and, and it was like, you know, somebody switches the light on and your room is really grubby. Yeah. And yeah. you feel embarrassed. And, I, and, and I mean, yeah, it was like a deep, I, oh, that was deep. But um, it, it's like moving beyond that what i came to understand is a this is about trustworthiness and how do you demonstrate to your children a that you're not going to leave again 
like the trustworthiness, you know, like how do you become a trustworthy parent after something like that? And it was about presence. It was about consistency. It was about like even when they, youngest wouldn't hug me for five years. I'd go to hug her and she'd say, oh, mum, don't start that again. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I understand, you know, in a, in an intellectual way, you can understand, okay, this child's got abandonment issues and trust is broken and you're going to have to be patient, yeah? But imagine so desperately wanting it to be right and finding the strength to be patient. That yeah. was so hard, you know, in the face of... You know, the kids would say things like, I tried to reestablish my place in, 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 in the family. And, you know, whilst I was away, the, the kids had obviously found replacements for me. Yeah. You know, aunties, friends who became the surrogate mothers in my place. And I was, you know, immensely glad, grateful, immensely grateful that, that people stepped into that space. Yeah, I was I, immensely jealous too and immensely yeah. like frightened that I would never get back that space, that that would be occupied forever and that our relationship would be damaged forever. And I think it just took so much patience. It took so much like not – it could never be about me what was going on at that point with my kids you know, I could never, it could never be about me. It had to be about them. It had to be about demonstrating to them that I was a trustworthy person, that I wasn't going to go back to any volatility in my life. I wasn't going to create any dramas. I was just going to be mum. We were going to have this settled life and I was going to go to work and I was going to build a career. I don't even think I thought about building a career. I just thought about making them proud of me. And that spurred me on through all, you know, through all the work that I've done since I came out of prison. I had a job on the very first day I came out of prison. I came out of prison on the Friday and I went to work on the Monday. Okay. And I, you know, I, I didn't have a car, you know, I walked to work with my lunchbox, you know, and lived, just had this life of wanting to demonstrate to my children that you can, that no matter what, adversity we suffer we can trans we can with work with love with kindness with support with encouragement with persistence we can move through that really difficult period in our lives and we can find the learning within it and we can synthesize that learning into something that is transformational and builds strength and vigor and energy and I wanted to like do that and be the the model of transformation for them so that they would feel enabled and equipped to move beyond their pain too, you know, because it was a reciprocal pain that stored in my heart, that dagger in my heart was theirs. They suffered that too. And I wanted to show with some leadership about how we all as a family move through that. And I think that I've worked really hard at that and, um, and with intention and, I, I think that in, by 2021, I think I can say I'm very proud of my kids. I think they yeah. turned into really nice people. 
they've turned into sensitive people, they've turned into kind people with power and strength and creativity, and I am immensely proud of them all. Yeah, and and I think that feeling may be mutual, Paula, in terms of building back and, and restoring those bonds and, in effect, getting mom back and, and building trust through yeah. with her over the past I've actually, I actually, I didn't stop you there purposely because I actually had goosebumps in my arm as you were explaining that. I was trying to put myself in your shoes as you, as you were, but you know, each each of our experiences is different. And I was, I was thinking it in terms of my role as a dad and 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 how my kids would feel if if, if that was the situation currently. Yeah. And it's just so profound to listen to someone that has. Oh been no, we have that. to reach out to the kids. I think that honestly, if there's any listeners here who have any family members who's who are in prison and, and children are left behind don't make the children feel like that they're forgotten like yeah. double down on the love and support and make them know that it's a transitional period and they will get through it yeah. and you know it takes what they say it takes a village to raise a child you know yeah. and and we mustn't forget the importance of family you know like extended family you know, there's a lot of pressure, isn't it? It's the individualistic pressure to say, oh, I can't take that burden on. But, you know, part of this more, this better vision for communities that we have, we have to build it ourselves. <laughs> it's like not gonna, it's not going to be delivered to us on a magic plate through a government programme either. You know, that can help. Government programmes, like systemic programmes can help, you know, redirecting resources back to communities. But we also need the energy in communities and in families to embrace those in difficulties and to to recognise that a little a little bit of love, a little bit of support, you know, that can be the difference between somebody becoming crippled by that pain from somebody who's got the strength and resilience to transform that pain into good and um, you know, kindness is a really underrated intervention. Yeah, now I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very interested in the lunchbox, <laughs> the lunchbox story. <laughs> so tell me, <laughs> what do you mean the lunchbox? Story? <laughs> you just says so you're, 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 you you left, you left uh, prison. No, I think you know what it was. Monday. Listen, had, before, I went, before I went, before I went, before I went away, you know, I obviously, you know, I, I don't think I knew about like catching the bus and go taking having your lunchbox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, you know, like yeah. it was probably would have gone, for, you know, bought dinner myself, you know, because I think when I came out of prison, I had forty six pounds. I'd lost everything, yeah, absolutely everything, and um, I had forty six pounds. That's what I left prison with after four years, and with that forty six pounds, I bought a mattress to sleep on. On, and what about food and substance? And well, that's no, what I'm saying. I had, yeah. I remember spending the whole of it on a mattress because I could. I'd slept on the floor, yeah. In the in the, the on the home leave before my actual release, I had actually slept on the floor, uh, and, on I thought, the... I, and I thought I needed a mattress, so I bought a mattress and I got to work, and. I must have got paid from work at some point. You know, I think I came out in the middle of June. So I got, yeah, I think I started. So I must have got paid at the end of June for yeah. a couple of weeks work and, you know, was able to start 
and paying my way from that point onwards. And, you know, that was difficult, a difficult transition to come out of prison and go straight into work. You know, it's like it was, I was really disorientated. But, yeah, you know, it was that sort of like the same persistence that got me to survive the prison sentence, got me to survive the transition from prison to community. And that was also really difficult at times, Michael. And that's another life experience that I use now in trying to support and manage people with lived experience of criminal justice who come to work, you know, about supporting employers and um, to understand what it takes to, to support that successful transition. And everybody's obviously unique and got different needs, but generally what type of culture do you need? How do you identify when somebody's struggling? You know, I use my life experience of having navigated that space myself to support others. And I think that's, you know, how we use our life experience, isn't it? We reflect on what we went through. We place it in the context of the other learning. And then we, we're, we're confident to share that in the hope that it will both educate, inform, but also transform. Yeah, I, th- I think you mentioned... Um perseverance, persistence, strengths. You've obviously did a lot of work on, on self and introspection. Oh, my God, and, and I, I lived deep. in the library. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I lived in the library. I lived in the, listen, I, I had two things that I did in jail, which is I went to gym because people go to gym. You can't not go to gym if you're in jail. It's like... It's need like, to go to gym. Big proponent of going to gym. Huh? I'm a big proponent of going to gym, particularly within the criminal justice system. Oh, my God. Listen, don't ever take the gym here away from people. Sometimes I'd be really tired and i go, I don't want to go to gym, but I live next door to the fittest girl in the prison. Oh, and right, she would so she would knock the door and she would say, Paula, you got to come to gym. I go, oh, I don't want to go. She'd go, Paula, come on. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, I'd get back over. <laughs> and she, she was lovely. Eve. Let's say big up Eve. Um, so she got me fit, and yeah. um, and then there's not much else to do. And I went used to go to the library. I'd go to gym, and then I'd walk to the library, and I would you know sit in the library, read a book, pick pick a book to take back to the cell. So I became I passed away a lot of time with reading, and I really liked lots of. I just had a very varied um, repertoire, but mostly did. I read a lot of self help books so I did a master's in integrative psychotherapy and counseling whilst was in prison which was you know obviously is immensely (laughs) (laughs) and and, and genuinely I use it in my work every day you know so there were benefits you know would I ever have completed that amount of study if I hadn't have been in prison I wonder with the stress and strain of five kids whether I would have but so I tried my very best to transform what was a very negative and painful experience into something that would you know I I don't know if I didn't ever plan when I was in prison to be in the position I am today that you know I didn't even have a vision that people with convictions could work in criminal justice you know I I didn't even know that was a thing And and it actually wasn't a thing yeah uh, when I first came out of prison, I think I've been at the vanguard of creating an appetite with um, Mark Johnson from User Voice. So big up, Mark! You know about how do you how do you create a new field? You know, people with uh, drug um, who'd been using drugs had, had for a long time been working in drug and alcohol services. But when we used to talk at the beginning in two thousand and nine um, about 
employing ex-prisoners and, and getting them to work in prisons, you know, people downright laughed and said, I'll never get off the ground. And now this notion of lived experience being a wisdom, a skill set that is incredibly important, both in policy, but also in delivery of service to people in the criminal justice system. You know, we've managed that to create that narrative change in 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 what? 11 years. 11, 12 years. 12 yeah. years. And I can, I feel like, imagine that. <laughs> imagine that, you know, miracles happen. Imagine that, you know, like if I want to go back to the faith uh, perspective, miracles happen. And what, what's the purpose of miracles? It's to, it's to strengthen faith in the possibility of change. Yeah. yeah. And so when we look back over the things that have been transformed by hard work, you know, I spoke to my dad quite recently. He's 88. And he grew up in a time when there wasn't free health care. So my father, as a socialist, always has maintained passion and never been disheartened because he has seen the development of the NHS. Yeah. He's seen it. He's seen yeah. how a Labour government transformed healthcare in this country and we have free at point of access healthcare. That's a that's an immense sort of transformation in the fabric yeah. of our of our of our country and so yeah. for me you know what the bit that I've contributed to which is the acceptance that people with convictions can be both leaders in our sector I would consider myself to be a leader in the sector we can be leaders in the sector we can be part of the delivery teams we can be part of the design teams we can be part of the evaluation teams we are we have a role you know, and it's not just as volunteers or to be regarded with suspicion around lack of trust. I think we can demonstrate, manifest trustworthiness. We can manifest leadership and we can manifest dynamic change. And I think that's that's the biggest lesson I've got from prison and life. Yeah. So you mentioned a 12 year journey there from 09 to, to 2021. Mm -hmm. So what is what does Paula want to see around the justice system movement change reform over the next five years. Wow. I mean, what's what's Paula want over the next five years? What do I see? want? Yeah, I would like to us to have a much more sophisticated discussion in this country about social justice and prison. Yeah, yeah. I'd like us to discuss why we're holding on to these Victorian notions of punishment as the way of. Um, as the way base of punishing people who break criminal codes and norms, but yeah. as a way in which we all create safety, community safety. I mean, look, there are some people that are a danger to themselves and to the others, 100%, yeah? And like, you know, I'm not saying that we don't need places where we segregate people for their own good and to satisfy us about um, community safety and, you know, acknowledgement of the harms that they've committed but we need to like be discussing what are those places what what are they like what, what what's the purpose of them what we're going to do within them because I, honestly if most people who are listening to this podcast have never been to a prison I think they'd be pretty shocked sometimes by what they see yeah because most people expect prisoners to be busy productive getting rehabilitated you know there's a lot of warehousing of bodies going on yeah and yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of under resourcing 
which means that people who are joined the prison service as prison officers hoping that they would change somebody's lives are being reduced to turnkeys. And yeah. that's that's to the detriment of their job satisfaction. Because some yeah. of these people, you know, they genuinely are there as a vocation and want to be part of transforma transformational work. But, you know, it's just not happening. There's a lot of, like, just, just lying on your bed. Now, you know, some people can have the skills to read and write and keep busy and transform their lives. Some people have thinking skills by which they can reflect on what's happened and they can use that space in a meaningful way. Some people just can't. Yeah. They're already suffering with so much trauma. They're already like so disorientated. They're already not in the space and they can't transform that space without help. And where's the help? So there's a lot of wasted potential in prison for change and that's to the detriment of community safety. So I think we need to have more open conversations about um, the purpose of imprisonment and what are the values and the principles that govern our approach to what we do when somebody does something that harms our community. You know, what, yeah. what, are, what are we going to do? These are what I would like, you know, the, you know, like much more of the conceptual stuff, because once we nail down an agreement about the conceptual stuff, then the delivery and the implementation, like, um, changes, doesn't it? If, if, if a prison officer was 100% informed and understood the purpose of imprisonment, the purpose of the job, that intuitively informs so many decisions that that individual makes. Yeah, But if it's not a consensus, you're sort of like going, well, I think I should do this, but I'm not sure what the, my colleagues think I should be doing. And there's confusion. And in that confusion, chaos reigns. And, 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 and it's a very hit and miss experience for prisoners about whether they get the rehabilitative experience that they need and whether the services and the policy is in alignment with the need for rehabilitation. We just get confusion. So yeah. that's what I want. I want us to have a grown-up conversation that is less emotive and is more ready to question why does prison sit at the back of our mind as an immovable object, as our way in which we um, deliver justice to victims yeah. and, and, and understand how crime happens. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and that's 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 future, Paula. I'm going to now ask you, and this is how I usually close okay. the podcast with all my guests. And we obviously didn't get to touch on vast periods of your life where I'm sure you've. you've I think you'd have to call me back. You know, we'd have to. Oh uh, yeah, I, may, I might actually have to have you on. For, for I think I might episode. have to come back. You know, <laughs> and tell you about my tenure at being a the Medway the Medway Towns Junior Tennis Champion. You know, I think I actually actually need to come and tell you about how I won a. <laughs> <laughs> the Medway Towns under 14s junior tennis champion. Oh, yeah. And that has informed my lifelong, my lifelong uh, interest in tennis right. and my, uh, my virtual, like, and my admiration for Roger Federer. I think you, you've honestly, you've got, we've got to have a discussion about that. I think we may start that, that discussion uh, 
if you're and any you, listeners ever want to visiting, invite me, if you're visiting us very soon in, in the in the fan city of Belfast, we might start this conversation. Yeah, definitely. And also, you know, if anybody's out there who's got a box at Wimbledon and wants to invite me, yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Open, I am a willing guest. You open open the offers immediately. <laughs> <laughs> so just just to finish off, Paula, and and to close this podcast out, which which is again every time I. I hear you speak, I learn something new and I, and I take something valuable away from it in terms of an insight. God bless you. You, you mentioned the, the tennis. So what what would young Paula, or should I say, what would young Paula say to old Paula in terms of managing the journey? Oh, bloody. <laughs> that's that's the first time I've ever heard okay, Paula I can Harriet tell... stuck for words. Yeah, no, because I'm thinking that because sometimes it feels hard to congratulate yourself. Oh uh, yeah. Um, but I think that where I am now, I'm proud of myself. Yeah. I think I'm. I'm. Somebody asked me the other day if you were doing. Um. If you if you were writing a book about your life, yeah. Which part of the bookshop would they find the library? Would they find it in? You know, would it, which section? You know, and I said horror. Yeah. And then afterwards, I thought, no, it's more adventure. Yeah. So I've had a life of adventure. I've had a life that has some had some really dark moments. Yeah. But lots of people have really dark moments, and you know that my kids are always tell me. You know, mom, you've got to be really careful when you talk about your pain that it's all comparative and actually you're talking through the lens of Western white privilege. Yeah. Well, I think the word you've just mentioned there is a fantastic way to close this out. I'm sure all that know you within the criminal justice setting, your work, your families and what you're trying to do in terms of driving change, we're all proud of you. Oh, thank you, babe. Thank you. That's so nice. And um, yeah. I love a bit of validation because I think anybody who's been to prison <laughs> is always looking for a bit of validation because moving from MN4865 Harriet to Paula Harriet, you know, lead for prisoner involvement at the Prison Reform Trust, you know. Yeah, it, yeah, it, a complete identity shift. Isn't it? So we're always looking for validation because I don't think we ever, anybody who's been to prison, ever forgets the degradation, the shame and the othering that happens in that moment. Yeah. Well, it's been fantastic having you on. and I look forward to obviously engaging with you moving forward. Where, where can everyone find you? Where's the best place to find you? If people oh, want come to on. Anybody can. Anybody. I'm really easy. I've got, I've got social media. I've got Facebook. I've got Twitter. I've got Instagram. Listen, I'm I'm with the young generation. I've got Instagram, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mostly, mostly, so I connect with my kids, yeah, uh, and grandkids. But I've got Instagram, so you can find me on you can find me on social media. But you can also find me really easily at Paula at theprisonreformtrust.org.uk. It's been fantastic having you, Paula, and I wish you all future success. And I look forward. Thank to you, Michael. And I look forward to soon. seeing you in Belfast soon. Yep, I'd see you soon. Thanks a lot for your okay. time. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. To find out more about the Turnaround Project and our social enterprises, Outwork and Big Loop Bikes, please click on the website 
I look forward to seeing you all for the next episode. Until then, remember, everyone deserves a second chance in reaching their potential. <laughs>